Welcome to Rex's Bible Minute, a weekly video where I talk about Jesus, Christianity, and basically anything along those lines. Um, and this week we are continuing our study in Ephesians. Um, it's been a, a, a long study so far, but it's been good. Uh, I've really enjoyed doing this, and I, I know some of you guys have really enjoyed it as well. So I hope that uh, as we, we finish the first half of this letter today, that, that it's been beneficial to you and that it's, it's been something that you know, has helped you in your, in your daily life and helped you in your, your knowledge and understanding of who God is and what His purpose in your life is. Um, but as always, if you haven't watched the videos up to this point, it's very much built on what we've already covered and you could get lost. Uh, you don't have to go watch them, but I would highly recommend it so that you don't go, uh, what, what does that mean? What is he talking about? What is he referencing? Because we do a lot of that just cause this is a very in-depth study. Um, but today we are going to be looking at the end of chapter three. Um, kind of, we're going to be starting in chapter three, verse one, but then we're going to jump to verse 14. Because if you remember last week, we said that Paul starts a thought in verse 1 and then kind of has an ADD moment and then he finishes the thought a little bit later. Well, okay, so that's what we're doing. We're going to start with verse 1 and then skip over the ADD moment uh, and then get back to the rest of the thought. Um, so he says in verse 3, 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Okay, and then if you did what I asked you last week, you put a parenthesis around the next uh, verses all the way up to the verse 13. Um, so basically what Paul did was he starts this this wrapping up of the first half of his letter and he starts to explain himself and he, he named he says that he's in prison and he thought the, the ADD moment is basically him saying, well, I probably need to explain why I'm suffering and you know why how I get through my suffering and, and I probably also need to explain you know how my readers should should feel about the suffering I'm going through. And that's basically what the ADD moment was. And then once he wraps that up, he picks up where we're going to look at today, starting in verse 14. So, as always, when we read the Bible, uh, or any, really anything, uh, let alone, you know, the Bible, it's important that we, um, we, we look at the thoughts as a whole. You know, these, these letters and books, they were written as entire laid out thoughts, not just individual verses, you know. So it's important that we read the whole thought section together. So that's what we're going to do, all right? So we just read the beginning of it in verse 1, then we're skipped to verse 14. And it's here he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And that word, that, that phrase, bow my knees, it, it actually probably could be translated as prostrate or prostra prostrate my knees, or prostrate myself, uh, be, uh, which, which is uh, basically laying down, butchering that right there. Um, but yeah, that's uh, the word kind of indicates that he's laying down. So it's very different for him because the way Jewish people prayed at this time, they, they were very ritualistic about it. Uh, and so they would, you know, stand up, they put their arms straight out and the palms up and, you know, that, that was how they prayed. So to, to lay down or, or to even get on your knees was to show like real devotion, real meaning in the prayer. So Paul's just making sure it's clear to his readers that he's he's praying meaningfully, like he's he's passionate in his prayer, okay? That's all you really need to know about that. Anyways, he says, For this reason I am passionately praying um, before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. 
So let's break this down verse by verse so that we can understand exactly what Paul is talking about. Um, so starting in verses 14 and 15, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Again, so when he says he bows and knees, the words there kind of indicates more that it really just, it indicates that he's, he's prostrate, that he's like laying down praying, like he's really, really passionately praying here. Um, but he talks about family. And it's, it's kind of one of those things that if you've been taught about the way God interacts with humanity, you'll instantly recognize this. Otherwise, it would just kind of be like, well, why is, why did God name families? Is the, is it the same name I I have? Like, is that is that is that God's name for him? Like, it just be com- kind of confusing. Um, so let, let me just kind of explain the way God interacts with humanity, and this will make a lot of sense. Um, basically, the way God has interacted with us is on our terms, right? God hasn't demanded that we understand things as He understands them, because then we'd never understand anything. That's why the Bible isn't a science textbook. It's, you know, it's, it's God speaking to people on the terms and language that they would understand. Um, and so, you know, when, when God dealt with humanity and he wanted to create Eden, you know, we, we said that Eden has three parts. It has God wanted to create a people to live in a place he created for them and to live in his presence. Like that's, that's Eden. That's how, the way the universe was created. That's where the, the humanity were created. And when sin broke all that, God has just been working to restore that, to, to recreate Eden. Um, and so you see elements of God's people and God's place in his presence throughout the entire Bible. It's just God working his way towards re- getting back to Eden where God's people fully live in his presence, fully in the place that he created for them. All right? So the way he, he went about creating this family was through covenants. Now, a covenant is basically a, a, a need a way to fill a need in the ancient people's lives, right? So we're talking like long time ago, uh, these these peoples of the of the Near East, they would the only people they could trust were their family, their kin, right? Um, and so they would uh, basically just stick to kin. They they just stayed within their family because they were blood, and you know you could trust somebody who was you know was your family, and they would trust you. But eventually they realized they needed to go beyond that. Like, you know, just for no other reason than they needed to find wives and husbands that weren't related to them, right? Um, But then there's also business interests and nation building and city building and all those other things that the ancient peoples did as civilization developed. Um, So they they came up with this idea of fictive kinship. And this basically is where they decide to make somebody family and you're going to be family to them. Uh, that's fictive kinship, and they did that through covenants. Covenants is basically you saying, "I'm family to you, you're family to me. Here's the rules, here's the guidelines, here's here's the deal that we're making." Um, and the punishments were severe because you basically were were stabbing a family member in the back at that point if you broke that covenant. That's the way that God dealt with humanity. He he said, "I'm going to make you my family. You are going to be my sons and daughters." You know, that's 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 that new thing that Paul was talking about uh, at the end of chapter two that. That God has created a family for Himself. He has created His people, right? All right. So that's what that Paul is saying here: is that that God has named every family His family. They just have to accept the invitation. N.T. Wright is a theologian. He paraphrased this. He's a really smart guy, basically. Um, and he's, his paraphrase of this verse is the Father, the one who gives the name of family to every family that there is on heaven and on earth. You know that that's what that's that's more true to what Paul is kind of getting at here. That that God has said we're all His family. We have a new family. It is being God's family. Um, and so we have this this fictive kinship with God. We're all His sons and daughters. You know, uh, and 
you know, when, when you think about being part of, of a family, you know, there's a lot of things that come to mind. You know, it might, you might think of inheritance. You might think of being connected. You might think of, you know, reputation from being part of a family. Um, you know, but, but the thing I think Paul wants us to get, and it kind of indicates with how he talks about the church, is, is the brother-sister aspect of it. Now, I know not every family has multiple children. You know, there's a lot of families with just single children, and that's perfectly fine. But the concept here is that, you know, if you have a true brother or a true sister, nobody will have your back like they will. You know, if, if somebody truly loves you and they're truly part of your family, uh, they, they'll have your back thick through through thick and thin. You know, nobody will have your back like your brother or sister. I think that's what Paul is getting at here, that the church is supposed to, to display that kind of relationship to the world, that we have each other's back, that we care about each other, that we're going to be there through, for each other through suffering, through hardship, through when somebody's going through something difficult. We're going to have each other's back. We're family. That's, that's what Paul is saying here, that we are part of God's family. He's, he's paid the price to build this family, and we need to act like it, basically. So... Uh, that, that brings us to the next next verse, verse 16. He says, That according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Okay, so God is creating this family. Uh, why is he doing that, and how is he doing that? Well, the word or phrase you need to, under, need to underline or pay attention to in verse 16 is inner being. Now, the ancient, in the ancient world, the Greek peoples were known as, as having kind of like the, the best intellect. I mean, at least that's what they said about themselves and kind of other things we read in, in ancient records indicate that that was kind of what everybody else thought too. Like the best philosophers were Greek. You know, the best thinkers were Greek people. Um, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there as to the accuracy of that. That was just the reputation they had, right? And so Greek philosophy was was treated as as like the the highest level of philosophy and and Paul his background the guy writing this his background is definitely one that would have included you know understanding Greek philosophy and Greek way of doing things uh, it's clear in his writings he references stuff like that a lot um, and so the inner being is is one of those references when he says that that the spirit will strengthen your inner being the inner being was something that the Greeks understood to have three parts. Your inner being had a reason, it had a conscience, and it had a will. You know, the thing that is you, you the talking, thinking part inside of you, that inner monologue or whatever, that it, it had reason, conscience, and will. Now, your reason is your ability to discern. It's your ability to think, basically, to evaluate information. That's that's your ability to reason. And so Paul is praying that, you know, you have a better ability to discern what's right and wrong, how to, how to make choices, that your ability to discern the world around you be strengthened and more in line with what God's will is, right? The second thing is your conscience. And that's the little voice telling you what's right versus wrong. And, you know, the further away from God you get, the less we tend to listen to it, right? The, the further away from God you get, the less that voice uh, is is given power in your mind. You know, you, you can ignore it a lot easier. But the closer you are to God, the louder that voice gets, the more sensitive you are to its leading. And a lot of times that will be the Holy Spirit leading you. It will speaking through your conscience. That's not 100% of the time. It's not always right. Like, don't, don't, don't take it as that, that your, your inner voice is God speaking to you. Like, it's definitely not, like... That's a whole can of worms. Don't open it. Like, don't 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 take everything that the inner monologue tells you to do as God's voice. Like, definitely don't do that. But a God will use your conscience at times. Um, and so Paul is praying that our, our conscience will be the voice of God. That like our conscience will be something that we listen to. 
And the last part is your will. You know, your ability to do things that you choose to do or refrain from doing things you choose not to do. You know, if you have the ability to discern what's right and wrong and you have a conscience telling you what's right and wrong, well, you have to have the ability to choose to do right instead of wrong. And so that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, you know, let us have a, a stronger inner mental aptitude, not that we have to be geniuses, but that we have a better ability to understand things. We have a stronger conscience to help us understand what's right versus what's wrong. And we have a stronger will to be able to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. And so Paul prays for all this, and then he wants us to see what that looks like played out. Right? He, he kind of shows us, well, this is what that looks like in the next three verses, or two verses. So verses 17 through 19, he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All right, so what does it look like for our inner being to be strengthened by the Spirit? Well, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying it starts with Christ dwelling in our hearts. Like it starts with becoming a Christian. That's, that's kind of what this means. Now the word there uh, to dwell, I don't know what your translation might say. There's a couple variants on it. Um, but the word there that where in the translation I'm using says that Christ may dwell in your hearts to dwell, it's the word uh, katoi kisai. Katoi kisai. Butchering it, I know, but it's on the screen as always. Um, and that word, it means to dwell in, to settle in, to be established in, to inhabit. But the the key part of that is it, it's permanent, right? This word, it's explicitly used in permanent residences. This is where you permanently live. This is where you permanently dwell. It comes from the word kata and the word oikeo, oikos, meaning household. And it's to house and permanently, to reside. It's your permanent place of residence. And Paul is using this word specifically. Like he could have used other words that don't imply or exp uh, permanence. But he's saying that Christ needs to be permanently in your heart, it needs to be the, the center of your heart, right? And he says, well, if that's your center, what's your foundation? What, he says that it needs to be love. You know, if a tree without roots, the first strong wing is blown over. I'm, you know, you, you put a, uh, like a little ficus in like a pot and you put it outside and, you know, you have strong winds, it gets blown over. Right? If, if you build a house and you don't put it on foundation, you don't mount it to the foundation, the first strong wind, it's the, the first storm, it's going to get blown away. That's why trailer parks are so dangerous because they don't truly have a foundation. You're not going to sink because they're on those concrete blocks, but there's nothing anchoring them to the ground. Paul is saying that if you want to live the Christian life, you want to follow Jesus, you can't do it without loving God and loving people. You just You can't. You may know a lot about God. You may do a lot of Christian things. You may do a lot of good works. You may go to church a lot. You may give a lot of money. But if you don't love people and love God, you, 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 it's not possible. You, you're just being religious, and that's not Christianity. Like, without loving God and loving people, it's just a waste of time. You could pick any religion, you know, and do that. Like, that's that's not what Christianity is. Christianity, the, the foundation of it, the root system of it is love. You have to love God. You have to love your fellow man. There is, They are inseparable. So we have Christ as the center of our lives and our hearts. We have love as our foundation, as our root system. Then he continues on and, and he says that, that we, we, he wants us to have those things so that we can understand the love of God. 
and I kind of find it funny, right? I find it funny because even he knows that's impossible. Like, he says it. He says that, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He, he says it's impossible to know the love of God. But that's why we have the, 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 the root system of love and Christ as our center and the, the strengthening of our inner mind so that we can know the love of God. What does that mean if he even says we can't know it? Like, it's too much. I mean, trying to understand the love of God is like looking at a picture of the universe. You know, they do have renderings of the picture of the universe. Not that somebody went outside the universe and took a picture, but it's like they, it's, it's a rendering, a projection of like what we understand about the universe and the way it would look. And if you look at that picture and, re and realize that every part of creation is on that picture, you just can't grasp it. Like you can't grasp the sheer amount of stuff that is in that picture. It just looks like a bunch of dots. It's, it's, it's a useless picture. You can't understand just how much is in a picture of the universe. Or to get cliche, it's cliche because it works really well. Uh, you know, God's love is like all of the oceans and our brain is like a thimble. Like it, it's, a, it's a shot glass worth of water. And, and God's love is the entire ocean's worth of water. Like you just, you can't process it. You know, you, you, can't, you can't fit it all in your head to truly understand it. So what does Paul mean by this then? Well, he says, look at Jesus. You know, the best that we can understand God's love is in the person of Jesus because that's, that's where we can see God's love played out. That's where we can see God's love have hands and feet and a mouth. and we, It's where we can see God's love put into action and speak and, and show what it's like to be that. Like, God is love. And so it's important that we, we look to Jesus in our understanding of love. Like, that is what love is. And the way he displayed that was on the cross, that he took our punishment that we owed and, and paid it for us. Like, that's love. That's God's love. It's, it's not normal. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this, this, this half of the letter, the doxology. Now, these last two verses, uh, like I said, they're, they're a doxology. That word has been used almost exclusively by the church for a long time now, and so it has become a church word, even though originally it's not what it was. A doxology comes from a combination of two Greek words, like most English words. Uh, doxa, meaning opinion, and logia, it's a suffix, and that means, you know, it basically means an oral or a written expression, right? So it's an expression of your opinion, right? Now, in the church world, we refer to doxologies usually as like hymns or sometimes poems about how great God is. They're songs of praise, basically. It's our doxology. Um, but really, it's, it's Paul's expressing his opinion of who God is. And when we are studying Paul's letters to form our own opinion of who God is, it's important that we understand what Paul thinks of God, right? Like, if we're looking at what this guy is teaching us about God, it's important that we understand what he thinks about God. And so verses 20 and 21, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, that Holy Spirit, you know, um, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So basically, what, what, do you, what is Paul's opinion of God? That God is supremely powerful. That everything that we face, God is so much bigger than. Like, he's so much bigger than the universe. Like, God is above all. He's such a big and powerful God that we can't even think of the right things to ask him because he's just that much above us. And he he thinks of, of, of eternity. 
You know, God's love doesn't change. It lasts to eternity. But Paul also like shows us that the church and, and our, our relationship with Jesus and with God lasts forever and ever for all generations. Ten million billion years from now, the church will last. Your brothers and sisters in Christ will still be your brothers and sisters. Your relationship with God will still be there. And I think it's important that we take away from this that we live like that. That we live like we have a God who truly is that powerful, that big. That we we that our relationships that we're building amongst each other really are going to last for eternity. That our relationship with God is going to last for eternity. And I think that maybe Paul had in mind just how quickly people live like none of that's true. You know, that, that people forget that, that Christ is the center of their heart, that their foundation is loving God and loving people, and that those things are the things that last for eternity. We live like what we're doing in our jobs and, you know, our families and, you know, our hobbies. Those are the really important things. We live like those are the things that last forever, but we, we, we act like, you know, that God thing, that's well, just peripheral to my life. Uh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, you know, it's not really... Not really that religious, not really that important. I think that's that Paul is saying, like, no, you have to live like those things are real because they are. And so that's my challenge to you this week as we finish up the first half of this this letter, is to remember that that what God did for us, that He created something new out of you, and that new thing is going to last into eternity. And those relationships you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ that that's going to last forever, and your relationship with God's going to last forever. Just dwell on that this week. Let that sink in, and, and, and let that affect the way you do things. So, again, we finished up the first half of this letter. I'm really excited that we got all the way through it, um, and I'm excited to get to the second half. Uh, and so, as always, if you have any questions, reach out to me any way you can, uh, and I'll see you next week.